Uh, Sunday school classes, you can go out with Jess, and I think Andrew's going too, so enjoy. We'll take your Bibles this morning, the book of Acts, and Acts chapter 15. And we're going to read Acts 15 from chapter, sorry, from verse 1 to verse 18. Acts 15, the Bible says, but some men came down. Actually, you know what? Let's back up a bit and get to context. Uh, from verse 24 of chapter 14, then we'll read down to 18. And it says that they, that's Barnabas and Paul, passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria and describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some elders who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after, had been, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old." And we trust God will add blessing to the reading of his precious word. There is a situation here in Acts chapter 15. And Acts 15 is a very central and a key passage in the book of Acts. 
It's central in its location and central in its content. It's central because it deals with an issue that will occupy more than a small part of Paul's later writings in his epistles. The issue of circumcision and whether or not the Gentiles must become ethnic Jews in order to be saved and to enter God's household. But it it really doesn't begin here. It actually begins back in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, Joel's prophecy of the Spirit being poured out has happened in Jerusalem at Pentecost among the disciples. In Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 8, Jews and Samaritans have heard the gospel of God's grace witnessed by the apostles and the early church. And many have been born again. They've believed the gospel. They've been filled with the Spirit. They've been saved and baptized and formed into gatherings or communities of God's people and God's household. These early believing Jews saw themselves as simply a sect within wider Judaism. For example, in Acts 24 and verse 5, the unbelieving Pharisees call Paul and the Christians the sect of the Nazarene. They're still going to the temple for teaching and for fellowship and for prayer, gathering in Solomon's colonnade as well as in believers' homes for the breaking of bread. In Acts chapter 9, Paul was saved and began to minister first in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, both times escaping the Jews' murderous plots. And Paul fled to Tarsus and spent some eight to ten years there in obscurity, And some scholars would suggest that Paul spent those years in prayer and study to understand the gospel in relation to the Old Testament, which is an educated Pharisee. He would have been uh, known it in great detail. In Acts 10, God gave Peter a vision and then sent him to Cornelius and the Roman Gentiles with the gospel message. And before he'd even finished preaching his gospel message and before they could even ask, What must we do to be saved? God poured out His Spirit on those Gentile listeners, indicating that God had regenerated them. He'd saved them. And afterwards, the believing Gentiles were baptized, seeing they had received uh, the Holy Spirit, as had the believing Jews. In Acts 11, Barnabas brings Paul to Antioch, and they minister there for a year. Then in Acts 13... And 14, Paul and Barnabas are sent by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel in Cyprus, in Pisidian Antioch, in Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe, Derbe, and Perga. And they witness God's saving work happening as Jews and Gentiles are hearing the gospel. And some Jews and many Gentiles are believing the message. Those believing Gentiles are being filled with the Holy Spirit and they witness God's doing signs and wonders among them. And Paul and Barnabas returned to Syrian Antioch with joy producing news of many Jews and Gentiles saved and elders, elders appointed and churches planted. And everything sounds great, right? It's going so awesome. And when things are going awesome, heads up, something's about to happen. In Acts 15, some believing Jews come down from Judea to Syria and Antioch, and they begin to insist that salvation was impossible without physically being circumcised. And that must have been like a massive dump of cold water over the whole church as they couldn't believe what they were hearing. The teaching caused 
such a great dissension and debate that the leaders sent Paul and Barnabas and some other Antioch believers up to Jerusalem to discuss the matter with the apostles and elders who held a council to describe, or sorry, to decide the matter. And these Judaizers are insisting on circumcision and law-keeping for Gentiles to be saved. In effect, the Gentiles must become ethnic Jews. We're not told their motivations, yet given their understanding of Judaism, the covenants, the law, the promises, and given their understanding of their ancestors' own history of disobedience and unfaithfulness and idolatry and then God's discipline of the Jews into exile, perhaps we can understand their desire, although they're clearly wrong. They had an overwhelming drive to see the law obeyed to its full, including circumcision of all who came to believe in the one true God of the Jews. For 1,400 plus years, that was how it happened. You want to become part of God's people? It required circumcision and law-keeping and all the rest of it. And the great question to be decided by this Jerusalem council is, must the believing Gentiles undergo physical circumcision to become ethnic Jews to be saved and enter the household of God, to which the scriptures add a resounding no. It wasn't required. The believing Gentiles are not required to be physically, physically circumcised because without perfect obedience to the law, physical circumcision is of no value, not even for the Jews, as Paul makes it so clear in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. If man were circumcised and able to keep the law perfectly so as to achieve salvation for themselves, then Christ died for nothing. Salvation is not by grace, nor through faith in Christ, and man himself receives the glory for his own salvation, instead of God being glorified as the Savior of his people. So our text in Acts 15, situated midway through the book of Acts, with the gospel to the Jews as the main content of the first half, and the gospel to the Gentiles as the main content of the second half of the book, now you see Jews and Gentiles formerly alienated, but now being recognized as fellow citizens and members of God's household. is just what Paul describes in Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. If you want to take your Bibles and flip over there, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, I'm going to read that section because it's, it's so full of what's happening here. And Paul writes, and he says in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself, that's Christ, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off 
and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the end of that that passage. So the conflict set where it is with the arguments presented by Peter and Paul and James help us to see how believing Jews and believing Gentiles are equally members of God's household. We are members of God's household because we are saved exactly the same way, by the same God, into the same household. In showing us how we're members of God's household, the passage also answers the question of what is necessary for salvation. And listen, nobody is saved by ancestry, by race, or by works of law-keeping. We are all saved by God's grace alone. Acts 15 verse 11, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. We are all saved by faith alone. Verse 9, God cleansed their hearts by faith. God cleansed our hearts by faith. We're all saved by faith in Christ alone. The only object of our saving faith in God is the person of Jesus Christ. We're all saved according to Scripture alone. The Scriptures bear testimony from Genesis all the way to Revelation of the Gospel. I love the fact that in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, he launches great long exposition of all those men who had faith in God. And he drives home the point that his salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. That's the only way it can be. And we're all saved for the purpose of God's glory alone. None but God receives the glory for our salvation. If we trust in our good works to save us, just like they were trying to trust in a circumcision and law-keeping, we get the glory but God, because it's what we're doing. So being that Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way, what is it that saves and identifies all those who are in God's household? And I'm going to give you in total, I think, five or six. The good news is we're only going to look at two today and the other three next week. So relax. We'll all get to lunch around about 2.30, 3 o'clock, okay? Good. I'm glad you're all comfortable because here we go. Uh, first of all, God's household are all those who are circumcised in heart. Now notice in verse 9, Peter's argument is that God has cleansed the believing <coughs> Gentiles' hearts. Sorry, I lost all my vocal power when I had the flu, and I'm just getting it back. He cleansed the Gentiles' hearts by faith. And that relates to circumcision of the heart. And I want to show you how. A few moments ago, I told you that we Gentiles do not have to undergo physical circumcision to be saved. And we don't. But is physical circumcision all that God requires under that heading of circumcision? And the answer is no. That's not all God requires. In the Old Testament... 
Moses gathered all the people of God together before he died, and they continued in the promised land under Joshua, and he gave them his exposition of the law, which we call Deuteronomy. So we're reading right now. He asked them a tremendously important question in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 13. He said, it, and now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What's the first thing you'd think? sacrifices, offerings, all this stuff you got to bring and do. This is what he says. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. How are God's people going to obey those requirements? It's impossible It's mission impossible. They couldn't obey those commands in their sinful spiritual condition. In order to obey those commands, they needed to be cleansed and purified in their hearts. And so he tells them in Deuteronomy 16 and 17, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. God who is absolutely holy and mighty is not partial. He would not and he could not turn a blind eye to their sin or ours. My friend, listen to me. Never, ever let this thought take root in your heart that God doesn't see. And if God sees, he'll just turn a blind eye. He'll just look away. He he likes me. He'll let this one go. No, not remotely. He knows their hearts. He's not partial. He sees. God knew their problem like ours was a sinful heart that must be cleansed. The man cannot by himself cleanse his own sinful heart. But God is so gracious Listen to God's promise to them through Moses at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 30 and verse 6. He says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And God's great promise to them about circumcision in the Old Testament is He Himself will circumcise the hearts of his people. You say, what's that got to do with our text here in Acts 15? I'm so glad you asked. Notice again, verses 8 and 9, what Peter says. God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. The fact that God makes no distinction tells us their hearts, the Jews' hearts, were cleansed by faith as surely as the Gentile hearts were. And having our hearts cleansed is the same as having our hearts circumcised because circumcision is all about purification and cleansing. Listen to what Paul says about this in some of the other epistles. In Romans 2, he says this in verses 28 and 29. He's writing to a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles, and he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, meaning not by the works of the law. 
In Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12, Paul, again, is writing to a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. And he says, In Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. In the, working, sorry, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That circumcision of Christ in the middle there, it means the circumcision of the heart performed through Christ's death by the Holy Spirit. Meaning what? Meaning that all believers, Jew and Gentile, have to have their hearts cleansed and it's only done by God's working through the Spirit in our hearts. In Philippians 3 and verse 3, Paul again says, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What's that mean? It means that we're not trusting in physical circumcision. We're trusting in God's work in us. We're not trusting in the works that we do. We're trusting by faith in God who saves us. And both Peter and Paul make it clear The household of God are those who have experienced the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to cleanse their sinful hearts through faith. 15 and verse 9 again. And he, that's God, made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. That's an interesting phrase, circumcised in heart. I went looking through all kinds of dictionaries trying to figure out what exactly do they mean? And what, it doesn't mean that God does like an open heart surgery, you know, goes in there, cuts open and cuts a piece out and throws it away. My doctor says my heart's so small, if he cut a piece off, there would be nothing left. So there you go. It doesn't happen like that. It's a human language expression for a spiritual reality. God the Holy Spirit in causing us to be born again has purified our hearts, cleansing them of sin. Another way it's put in Ezekiel 36, that he's removed the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. He's washed our guilty conscience clean. In Christ, we're new creatures. The old has gone. The new has come. It's God's work that only he can do, done in grace, because of his great love with which he loved us and had mercy on us. God can do that work because Christ has died for us. He has paid the penalty for our sin. And as Hebrews 1 says in verse 3, After Christ had made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His suffering and death on the cross is what purifies us of sin. Amen. (laughs) Isn't that great news? Washed clean. I'll tell you a little story. Wednesday night, we finished the Bible study here in the prayer meeting, and I went to go home, and it was like just shocking down rain out there. And I'm standing there, and I'm looking at the rain. I got to drive 45 minutes on the highway. It's dark. It's wet. There's puddles, you know. I thought I don't mind driving through puddles in my truck. That's fun. I'll admit that. But I just didn't feel like it. And I came back inside here, and I thought, you know, what am I going to do? And I talked to Heather. I said, you know, I'm, I'm just going to crash here at the church. I'm just going to sleep here. Yes, the pastor occasionally sleeps here at the church. Everything's fine in our marriage. It's all good. But I stayed here overnight. And Heather goes, what are you going to do about a shower, right? I mean, that's what women think about showers. Guys like, who cares, right? And so I thought, no problem. I can go to a shower at the gym down the corner there. It's good. 
And so I got up, and I kind of didn't sleep all that well. And I walked around all day, and I, I just had a wash and did what I had to do and, and eventually went home. And I went and had a shower. And you know how that, that feeling when you, you're kind of sweaty and dirty? Um, when I was a carpenter, that was all the time. <laughs> and you go in the shower, right, and you wash off. And you step out, and you just feel clean. Isn't that a great feeling? I don't mean just a shower. You get the point. It's a tremendous feeling when we trust in Christ and we realize in that moment when we trust Him and we feel that experience of the Holy Spirit softly whispering in our hearts, you're clean. No more do you carry your own sin. No more is your conscience reared up to say, you've done this and you've done that and you haven't done this and you haven't done that. We're clean. And the members of God's household, those of us sitting here in this place who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, brothers and sisters with believers of every different kind and description and background, we all have one thing in common. It's Christ, and we're cleansed by faith. When Christ suffered and died on a cross for your sin and mine, His shed blood washed your conscience clean. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Not even your own conscience can say, over here, nothing. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we are brothers and we are sisters of blood. Christ's blood. And these Jews and Gentiles, they sat in this big council and the, and the big wigs were all just talking about how it's all going to work. And it was starting to sink in. It's not about circumcision. It's not about law keeping because Christ kept the law perfectly for us. And Christ has circumcised our hearts. And that's what God's interested in. Paul could say, listen, your physical circumcision, it's irrelevant if you cannot keep the law perfectly. And nobody can keep it perfectly. That's our salvation. That's our fellowship in Christ. My friend, has God done that work in you? Do you have within yourself that joy, that peace, that that great feeling of being cleansed by the testimony of God's Spirit within you that your heart has been circumcised and cleansed, your guilty conscience has been cleansed and can no longer bring a charge against you? Or are you like the Judaizer, still trying to earn God's favor? You're trying to do all the good works you can to buy God's favor, like the Judaizers who demanded circumcision for the Gentiles and keeping the law of Moses. Listen, God, good works saves nobody. If our salvation required a human work to be done in addition to Christ's suffering on the cross, then in reality, the cross of Christ is sufficient to save nobody. Think of it this way. 500 meter span, right? Two big cliffs on either side. And the builders say, hey, we got a great deal going. We're going to build a bridge that goes 99% of the way over. 99% of the way leaves five meters uncovered. Which means that bridge spans nothing. All it is, is a very long walk on a very long plank to drop off the far end, right? And you can see the other side, but five meters, you can't step across that. That's a gospel of works. That's a gospel that says, I can do enough good that God will accept me. No, it won't work. 
Works-based salvation is no salvation of all, but the gospel of God's salvation by grace is infinitely better. It's accomplished, all accomplished by God on our behalf. It's what is required for us. All that's required for us is to submit to God by faith and trust Him to know that saving grace in your heart. My friend, do you know it? I assure you on the testimony and the authority, not mine, on the scripture. I have none. I have, it's all here. If you trust in Christ, you will know what it is to be free. Free of the chains of your sin, free of a dirty conscience, and you will have the welcome that you are God's child, accepted, adopted, and welcomed into his household. What a hope. Moving on. What is necessary for salvation is to have our hearts cleansed, circumcised by God through faith. Who are the members of God's household? There are those who are circumcised in heart by the Holy Spirit who are not trusting in the works of the flesh to save them. The second one, the last one we'll look at for today, is God's household are those who are filled with the Spirit. Notice in verse 8 of Acts 15. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to the Gentiles' salvation by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he had done to all the Jews. The Old Testament prophets promised the coming and pouring out of the Spirit on all of God's people. In Ezekiel 39 and verse 29, God promised, I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my Spirit upon the whole house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And in Joel 2:28 and 29, God promised, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. In Luke 24 and verse 49, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus promised the disciples... I'm sending you the promise of my Father upon you, and you'll receive power when the Spirit has come upon you. And God, who cannot lie, keeps his promises he made to his people. At Pentecost, the apostles and the 120 disciples gather in the upper room, receive the pouring out of the Spirit. And what do we see? In Acts 8, verse 17, the believing Samaritans were filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10, and verse 44, before Peter could even finish his second main point of his sermon, the Spirit of God was poured out on the Roman Gentiles, and they were filled. In Acts 13, the Grecian Gentiles were filled with the Spirit. And in Ephesians 1, and verse 13, you know what we read? When we hear the gospel... The word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and we believe in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Like branded with a branding iron to burn a mark in you, a mark that everybody can see that the Spirit of God is in here. That there's something radically different about us, and it's the filling of the Holy Spirit. Paul explains a bit further in Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The blessings of Abraham are extended to Gentiles through Christ. The promise of the Holy Spirit is received by faith, just as Peter makes clear to all those who are listening in that place in Jerusalem. God, 
who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit as he did to us. And just as believers, Jewish believers, receive the Spirit as they believe, and just as the Gentiles believe... I'll try it again, slower in English. So also the Gentile believers received the Spirit of God as they believed. And the Spirit's presence isn't just like my wedding ring. I use that analogy all the time, but it's actually not a very good one. My wedding ring tells everybody who looks at my finger that I'm married to Heather. And that wedding ring exerts a tiny little influence. You know what it is? You look at my finger, it's got a little divot where the ring's been. It's been there for 30 years. That makes a mark. The Spirit of God is infinitely greater than that. His presence works a powerful influence on our whole lives. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God exerts a powerful influence on the believer to conform us to the family image of God's household. In John 16, verses 8 to 11, the Spirit of God convicts us of sin. You know that moment? When you do something or you say something and you know you should not have done that. And that little voice begins to whisper in your ear, you shouldn't have done that. We all know it. The convicting voice of the Holy Spirit that says, you need to speak up to that person over there. You need to go and confess that. You need to do this. You need to open your Bible and preach the gospel. You need to do this, that, and the other thing. The Spirit of God convicts. It has an, a, an influence on us. It convicts us of sin. In Romans 8, verses 10 to 11, the Bible tells us that the Spirit brings and gives us life. You and I who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ are more alive than we can ever possibly imagine. And this is just the beginning because one moment will set from this world into the next from this present temporal state into the next eternal state, and we'll know fullness of life in perfection. We know a little foretaste of it now. But it's coming. In Romans 8, verses 5 to 9, He brings us freedom and peace. In Acts 9, verse 31, the Spirit comforts us in our labors. In Acts 1, verse 8, the Spirit empowers us for ministry and service. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, He sanctifies us, making and conforming us into the image of Christ. And there's so much more we could say about this. And in Galatians 5, and verses 22 and 23, He produces the evidence of His indwelling presence in us. Being filled with the Spirit is not so much necessary for salvation as it is genuine proof of salvation. It is true for all those who are members of God's household. And brother and sister in Christ, do you know the powerful influence of the Holy Spirit in your life? And I'm not talking about sign gifts. I'm talking about something far more important. I'm talking about the influence of the Spirit of God changing you from the inside out. Sign gifts have their place. I'm not saying they don't. I don't want to get distracted by that. I want you to stay on the main point. The Spirit of God influences us. Do you sense His convicting voice deep in your heart, poking and confronting and challenging over you, over the words you've said, over the actions you've taken, over the sinful desire you have for what God has not given? Do you know? 
that deep inner sense of joy and peace and freedom that comes only with his abiding presence. Have you experienced those moments? I think we've all had them. When the natural, sinful human reaction to a certain circumstance would be anger. But instead, there's a patience and a gentleness that we cannot describe outside of the work of the Spirit of God in us. Perhaps it was a natural, sinful human response to be jealous. But instead, there was love. A love that only the Spirit of God can produce. Perhaps the sinful response would be callous indifference to something, but instead the Spirit worked within us to break our hearts in compassion and kindness. That's the evidence of the Spirit. Don't go home, pick up Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, and think, okay, I've got to be more loving. Oh, I've got to be more loving. Oh, you know, oh, I've got to be more peaceful. Peace. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work from the outside in. It works from the presence of the Spirit of God inside my life, changing me through the Word of God, through prayer, through His presence, that produces the evidence, singular, it's not fruits, it's fruit, evidence, that He is there. And in times, that evidence will look like one thing, joy when you should be furious, patience when you, should, when you feel like being angry, compassion and kindness when before you just have an indifference to it, turn your back and walk away. That's the work of the Spirit of God. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we are members of God's household as we display that, as it's seen in our lives. Are those experiences yours, Christian? If not, I plead with you to stop everything, to take stock Take the time this afternoon, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Examine your own heart before God and the open scriptures. Has your heart been truly circumcised and cleansed by God? Has your conscience truly been washed of its guilt? And if you need to, get on your face before God and cry out to Him for help. I promise you, those prayers God hears. If we truly know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we are members of his household, adopted forever, stamped and sealed with the branding mark of his spirit which changes us. No longer are we slaves to sin, but we're now slaves to righteousness. No longer do we have a desire and a craving to fill our lives with sinful behavior and thoughts and actions. Now there is a desire burning deep within us to live lives that are pleasing to God. Living lives of righteousness and holiness and godliness. That's what it means to be saved and added to God's household. I pray, I plead with you, brother and sister, if you're not sure, on your face, on your knees before God, and search your heart before the Lord to know that that is your experience. Look for the testimony of Scripture, not feelings. Feelings are problematic. The evidence of Scripture. Look and see. We're going to look next week at God's house or those who are seeking the Lord.
searching, mining the scriptures, searching to find God and have communion and fellowship with him. Those who are believing the gospel and those who are called by God's name. My friend, if you're sitting here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the elders. We'd love to help you be sure in your own heart that you know him. And if not, to show you how you can know him. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. And we'll be finished for the morning. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we give thanks and we praise you, O God, for the great message, the great hope of the gospel that we have. Father, we thank you. We praise you, O God, that you have done your work, that the Lord Jesus Christ has gone to a cross and shed his blood and suffered and died that we might be washed clean we might know what it is to have peace, to have joy, to have forgiveness of sins. And Father, we would just pause and we would worship in this moment and glorify the Lord from the depths of our hearts for all the great work that he has done. Father, we thank you and we praise you for such a great salvation. And Father, I am sure that there are some standing in this room right now and their hearts are in turmoil, wondering if they really belong or not. Father, I cry out to you that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would draw them close, lift their gaze to see Jesus, help them to recognize that by faith in him they can be saved. They can know what it is to have life and have it more abundantly. They can know what it is to have peace with you reconciled to one another reconciled to you. Father, we give thanks for this great hope of the gospel. Father, we ask you now as we will take some time just to be in fellowship one with the other, to speak of these things and other things. Father, we pray that our fellowship would be sweet, that it would be guided by the Spirit, that the things that we discuss and talk about would honor and glorify the Lord in every detail. And Father, we ask you these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen.